Thank you, Christine. And thank you, Rebecca. Looking forward to that day. Let's pray. Father, we've come into your house. We desire your presence. And thank you, Lord, for that blessing that has attended this service as it's begun from praise and petition to giving to reflecting to the gifts of music. And now, Lord, I pray may our spirits be sensitive and open to your leading as we open the word. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nice to have you all here this morning. We're continuing our series out of the book of Daniel entitled Risk and Redemption. And this morning I've entitled the message Vaccinated for the Apocalypse. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them up, if you would, to the book of Daniel. We'll be in chapter 5. This is the end of Babylon. Babel, or Babylon, takes its root word from a name that actually means gate of God. We tend to think of it in the phraseology that came to be known amongst the Jews as the place of confusion, Babel. This last chapter of the supremacy of the nation of Babylon is a sad one. It's important for us to understand where we are. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 B.C. That means he reigns for about 40-some years, probably about 44 years. Babylon as a kingdom will only last for another 23 years. So it's hard to imagine this head of gold being so significant, so splendid, so powerful, then in effect in one short generation we could see the kingdom be no more. And of course some in the midst of this COVID experience and all of the dialogues are reminded of the statements of some of our own statesmen who remind us that freedom and its demise is only one generation away. So it's important for us to understand how quickly the soul of a nation can rot. And in this case, we see Nebuchadnezzar dying. Then there's about three or four quick kings that come in succession, very short uh, dynasties, if you should dare call them that. And there arrives on the throne one named Nabonidus, who marries the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, Nidocris. So Nabonidus is the fourth after Nebuchadnezzar's death, and he actually establishes himself on the throne of Babylon. In 550 B.C., he goes on a campaign in the area of Palestine. He gets sick. And while he's sick, he goes to Lebanon to recover. And while he's in Lebanon... He summons someone that history knew nothing of whose name was Belshazzar. Not to be confused with Daniel, who is Belteshazzar. Now, my little pneumatic device for remembering this is that Daniel's name has a cross in it. It has a T. Belshazzar, the king on the throne, is summoned while Nabonidus is sick. He's summoned to Lebanon. And Nabonidus ensures 
the continuation of his throne, his dynasty, by giving a co-regency or a partnership with Belshazzar. So Belshazzar is a boy king almost. He's a very young man. And he is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, even though there were a few short, difficult, uh, kingly moments with others in between. So we have Nebuchadnezzar dying in 562. Finally, Nabonidus marrying Nebuchadnezzar's daughter and on a campaign getting sick And while he's recouping, he doesn't want anyone challenging his kingdom, so he shares the rulership with Belshazzar. Which is why when Daniel stands before the assembly gathered for that illustrious party, Daniel is told that he will be the third ruler in the kingdom. So this story is a very interesting one. Nabonidus never really returns for any length of stay to the capital city of Babylon. He goes on another campaign. He does some conquering down in northwest Arabia, and he builds palaces there. He rather enjoys a gentlemanly-type kingship, and he leaves the rulership of the kingdom primarily to Belshazzar which is where we pick up here in this story. So I want us to understand historically where we're at in the experience of this great kingdom, which was mighty and majestic and ruled for only at least not much more than the exile of Judah, which was approximately 70 years. So now take your Bibles if you would. And by the way, Belshazzar was someone that the scholars said the Bible writer invented. Because prior to 1854, there were no historical records of anyone by the name of Belshazzar. So he was a figment of biblical imagination. So said all the archaeologists and students of history. Until in 1854, they found reference of him. And then actually later on in the 1880s, they found something called the Nabonidus Chronicles. It was a, they were clay cuneiform text. And the story was actually told. Belshazzar was someone we had to take on the record of faith prior to the middle of the 19th century. But nonetheless, the biblical history is true. And this morning, we pick up with the ramifications and the relevant elements to the 21st century. So take your Bibles now and let's relook at the story. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. And by the way, if you'd like an excellent resource... Uh, Make sure you have a set of the Bible commentaries, but if you'd like an excellent resource and you want a one-volume commentary, get the new Andrews University Press Bible Commentary on the Old Testament. Exceptionally well done and very beneficial. Um, Andrews University Press Old Testament Bible Commentary. The New Testament one's not been uh, printed yet, but you'll want that too when it comes out. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of 1,000. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. It's important for us to understand what's going on outside the city. Herodotus tells us 
that there were 56 square miles inside the walls, which were 87 feet thick, if Herodotus' account is true. And only one uh, architectural feat could equal the size of the walls, and that was the main temple of Nebuchadnezzar. It appears that Belshazzar felt so confident and so comfortable inside the city that even though he was surrounded by Cyrus's generals and armies, he could throw a party like this. Now, if there's something I want you to know, I'm going to contrast spiritual diseases this morning. Well, actually, I'm going to contrast spiritual conditions. Because on one side, I'm going to show you the spiritual diseases that prepare a nation for its own implosion and being taken advantage of by its own blindness. On the other side, I'm going to show you how to vaccinate yourself for the apocalypse. And by the way, there's a lot of information going on out there. A lot of it's disinformation. We did see in the lead up to the elections that a little over half of our country doesn't want to take any kind of vaccination. I'm not here this morning to suggest to you whether you should or shouldn't, but I want you to understand that vaccinations are a big deal right now, and whether you do or don't take that vaccination, what I want to talk to you about this morning will make the difference between whether or not your life is a blast, a beautiful blooming, and then that's it, or whether or not this life is built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the assurance as we head to some pretty dark days with a great hope of a life to come where there'll be no more night. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, you have to be a fairly arrogant soul to be parting with all the thousands of your lords so drunk, so uh, immersed in dynamics of intoxication that you'll do what your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar never did. You'll show a type of disrespect to the God of Jerusalem, which was conquered indeed by the Babylonian armies. So outside the city, they are surrounded. You have to at least ask yourself, why didn't Belshazzar say, are you absolutely certain nothing could go wrong? You need to see that in the span of less than 70 years, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom goes from one built on at least some measure of truth and graciousness and, and wisdom and rulership to a rather postmodern experience where self-truths become truths that may not be truths at all. And the truth that was going around the kingdom of Babylon is that it could not be conquered. It was impregnable. And so here is Belshazzar with 56 square miles inside the walls of, of this massive city, water running through the middle of the city, no need of anything for months or years to come, quite certain they can fend off the Medes and the Persians, and they're going to have a party. And the party is going to be such an affair that somewhere along the line with the king leading out in this drunken orgy, he'll go farther than any king has ever gone before, and he will raise his hand, as it were, against the God that had raised his hand against his grandpa, and he will bring out the golden and the silver vessels. Verse 3, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. The king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, I think it's important for us to see the parallels in our 21st century experience. In it would appear that in not much different amount of time, 
the 23 or 24 years from the time of Nebuchadnezzar's death to the fall of Babylon, it would appear that in one short generation, an awful lot can change. And so we can go from the days of Little House on to the Prairie to the celebration of everything vile and anti-family that can be pumped across the airwaves and brought onto our devices. Indeed, we see America as the lamb-like beast becoming beastly in its appetites before it's beastly in its exercise of power. The innocence of the lamb is being traded in for the wickedness of the beast in our very nation. And without going back to the good old days, which everybody knows weren't quite as good as they seem, but they were on a moral platform better than the days that we're living in right now, and most people know it. And I'm going to go farther than that. In Nebuchadnezzar's generation, there was a knowledge of the true God. And before that knowledge could evaporate, there was accountability and judgment, which is a marker, a prophetic marker for us. Because before a knowledge of moral living can evaporate from the face of this once Christian nation, there will be a moment of accountability as well. God does not call people to judgment who don't know better. And that's what this story tells us, that before the the wisdom of the previous generations is gone, this country will be held accountable for the direction it's chosen and the appetites of its corporate mental desires. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged, and they began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. This writing is done, as the spirit of prophecy will describe, in letters that look like fire. The king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The the experts in the Hebrew tell us that this is really verbiage for incontinence, which tells you how fearful this man was. It was a statement of judgment against all gathered in the hall, but especially Belshazzar. And we go through the same routine that Daniel tells over and over again about the lack of wisdom of the wise men of the age. And then the Greek queen arrives. This is the queen mother. The queen entered the banquet hall, verse 10, because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and she said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you. And she hearkens back to the days of one who understood. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke, and he said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who's one of the exiles from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now, folks, don't read the Bible without trying to inform yourself just a little bit. There is no word for ancestor or grandpa in the Hebrew language. So when you read about father, you're really reading an expression that encompasses not only grandfathers, but even non-related progenitors or dynasty makers. So in this case, when Belshazzar is talking about his father, it's a Hebrew colloquialism or uh, idiom that is referencing to the fact that one of his ancestors was Nebuchadnezzar. And that's where these dots are getting connected. Now I've heard about you, verse 14, that a spirit of the gods is in you. And that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. 
Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make the interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you'll have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Spirit of Prophecy tells us that Belshazzar was acquainted with power and privilege of the kingdom as a boy. He was in Nebuchadnezzar's palaces. We don't know how old he is, but he does appear to be rather immature no matter what his age is. And here he is one who appears to have forgotten from the frontal lobe of recent, relatively recent history, one who seems to have become marginalized in the new Uh, the new kingdom, the new dynasty. We don't know what measure of real awareness uh, Belshazzar has of Belteshazzar, of Daniel. But we do know this, Daniel is going to hold him accountable and make sure he understands that what could have been is gone because of a willful ignorance and a completely different chosen lifestyle. Daniel is in the presence of the king And it's an important moment. The king has chosen a form of willful ignorance or blindness. And this record of the humbling experience uh, for King Nebuchadnezzar is going to be brought back up. It's important for us to pause at this moment and recognize a few things that will be particularly relevant to us. Number one, Belshazzar chooses to go a different way than his grandfather. In the motions of those uh, monarchical decisions of the dynasty's direction, impending doom is coming. There comes a point in time when God himself must remove his protective hand and the evil that he would have staved off is upon them. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your reward to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. I want to talk to you this morning about willful ignorance and how it becomes fashionable. At the heart of this story, at the heart of this moment of judgment, is a knowledge that this same God who sought to reach 
the mind and the heart of Nebuchadnezzar certainly sought to do the same thing with Belshazzar. God desired for this man to know him as the divine regent of the universe and certainly the experiences that Nebuchadnezzar had were to be informative to this man's life. Now, there is no record of a great humbling of Belshazzar. None. What does that mean? Daniel specifically references to the experience of his grandpa. What does that mean? It means that God believes and codifies and directs that generations will sometimes have to humble themselves always in God's economy, but sometimes for some will need to humble and recognize the wisdom of the previous generations or they will sow the seeds of their own self-destruction. The fifth commandment says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God has given thee. God was not going to do the same exact things in the lives of Belshazzar that he did for Nebuchadnezzar because in the, in the humility of, of youthfulness, if such a thing exists, there is wisdom to be gained from those who have gone before us. But in the arrogance of those who know better, and you combine with it hedonism or sensuality or pleasure-seeking to the max, pretty soon you have the reason why you don't want to learn from everybody else. Because those people are the ones that cast restraint on the willful lustfulness of the younger years of life. Yes, indeed, this story is a call and an indictment to the 21st century arrogance of generations who've come out of college and made more money, and they've gone up to the new tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they've picked their technological superiority off its boughs, and they've gone out without needing the affirmation and certainly not the accountability of the generations that have come before them. If there's a warning to God's people at the time of the end, it's that there is to be a reverence for those who have been educated by life, who have something to tell us. But the devil, knowing how this works and understanding the safety of a multi-generational family unit, a church, if you don't have a family unit, the devil has come along and he's made it easy to break the generations apart. As a matter of fact, we've made a science of explaining why the new children don't need the old parents. I want everybody to think about this because it should change the way we relate to people. So your kids, even adults, don't like it when you intervene in their life. Be wise. I'm not here today to suggest that you should run roughshod against social etiquette or against social intelligence. But for one who walks according to pride, who is willfully ignorant, I want to assure you there is a corresponding spiritual disease, and that corresponding spiritual disease is called arrogance. If you can't see it in our modern society, then you're pretty blind. And if I had a dollar for every time a young person rose up and castigated the best efforts of their parents, I could be a man with a little bit of resources. The truth of the matter is that we are, according to the Scriptures, at least the wise ones in the Scriptures, know better than our fathers. 
And God is actually calling this generation to an experience of humility where we actually stop and realize that the best learning comes from those who have learned in life and are still here loving us enough to teach us. I have four children. They're almost all totally emancipated. I have a daughter that I'm looking forward to having home for the next few months. When I held that first little baby in my arms, I didn't run to the latest guru on child rearing to find out how to make sure he had a good self-esteem. I didn't start to measure and manage my parenting styles based on how I thought the child would feel about me. I didn't start determining how I was going to disciple and discipline this young man who was followed by two other young men and then finally a little girl. I didn't choose the journey of discipling their lives based on the latest understanding of modern psychology. I was humble enough to understand that my mother, who received from her mother, who received from her mother the collective understanding of millennia of parental wisdom. Now, did they do everything right? No. Have I done everything right? No. I combined with this, the, the sages of the ages, I combined with that the, the filter, the seething dynamic of the Word of God because my mother, while having many strengths, certainly had certain weaknesses. And I'm sure her grandmother did too. But who do we think we are to think that all of a sudden the collective whole of the wisdom of generations can be turned on its head with the new data of measurable science? What kind of arrogance, what kind of willful ignorance leads to this kind of arrogance and sets us up to be parting on the eve of judgment? That's exactly what this story is about. So ignorant, willfully so, because the unfettered dynamics of the sinful carnal nature don't want any speed bumps on the road of life. They won't want anybody saying, you might be making a bad decision. On my way back from Montana, I enjoyed a almost two-hour phone visit with my mother. And uh, she has a favorite story she likes to bring up about me when I was a collegiate. How I had borrowed some money from my girlfriend. And uh, my mother wasn't convinced that was a very good decision. And her favorite thing to remind me of about this story is how I said to her, Mom, we've all got to make our own mistakes. She brings this up to me regularly. It's a reoccurring theme in her, um, I don't know, I want to say this very respectfully. I, uh, my mother is, is my hero. <laughs> but uh, in her, you know, older people repeat stories. And this is one of her favorite ones to repeat about me. And uh, the, the young woman did become my wife. And I was affirmed last night at the supper table when I was telling this story in the presence of my mother-in-law and she mentioned how she had purchased a suit for her husband of now almost 60 years when she was a young woman and she was able to do so. I don't bring it up so much for the, 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 the verity or the, the accuracy of my mother's componentry as much as that as a young man, my mother intersected my life as a young man and suggested I was on 
a wrong path. Am I suggesting I related to it the right way? I'm not suggesting that either, but I am suggesting that once you think you've emancipated your children, it doesn't mean you've emancipated yourself from responsibility to save them from eternal destruction. And they're not going to like some of the things you say to them, especially if they're on the track of Belshazzar. So be wise and be prayerful. Be noble and respectable as we see Uh, the men of God in the book of Daniel, choose the timing, the words wisely, but don't deliver yourself from what Daniel was obligated to do on the downside of judgment. Because everybody comes to a point in time in their life when the decision-making moments are over. And that's where Daniel is when he's called into the great festivities of Belshazzar. It's done. It's interesting the way the spirit of prophecy describes this story. She refers to God as the uninvited guest. Well, there was at least one other uninvited guest at the party, and that was Daniel. Why should I bring this up to you this morning? Because as we watch the character of a nation change, and perhaps even at times the character of the church change, you should expect that there will be times and places where you're not wanted. You should expect there to be a marginalization and a a moving off to the side of things that were once central, like an old-fashioned value system. Yes, God was the uninvited guest, but he was there anyway, and eventually his servant was invited too. And when Daniel goes to talking with Belshazzar, it is a respectful but exceptionally direct conversation that he has. The few sentences that are recorded in Daniel chapter 5 don't really capture the full flavor of everything that was going on in that room. Belshazzar didn't realize there was someone else there that was watching. Interestingly enough, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 524, she describes the moment like this, where but a few moments before there had been hilarity and blasphemous witticisms. An apt description of modern day uh, entertainment culture where before there had been hilarity and blasphemous witticism, where, pa- where, where now pallid faces and cries of fear. And when God makes men fear, she goes on to write, they cannot hide the intensity. But as for Daniel's rebuke, listen to this commentary. He spoke of Nebuchadnezzar's sin and fall and of the Lord's dealings with him, the dominion and glory bestowed upon him, the divine judgment for his pride, his subsequent acknowledgement of power and the mercy of the God of Israel, and then... In bold and emphatic words, he rebuked Belshazzar for his great wickedness. Listen, there's an audience of over a thousand people there. He held the king's sin up before him, showing him the lessons that he might have learned, but he did not. Belshazzar had not read aright the experience of his grandfather, nor heeded the warning of events so significant to himself. If you're a young person listening to me today, stop for a moment. Because if you don't read or write the experience of the generations before you, you'll end up with the same disease of willful ignorance and resulting arrogance that will allow you to mismanage your own life. The opportunity of knowing and obeying the true God had been given him, but had not been taken to heart, and he was about to reap the consequences of his rebellion. Because of the strange perversity of the human heart, she writes, God had at last found it necessary to pass the irrevocable sentence. And then she goes on to say, every nation has come upon the stage of action 
that has come upon the stage of action has been permitted to occupy its place upon the earth. The fact might be determined, that the fact might be determined whether it would fulfill its purpose, the purpose of the watcher and the holy one. Prophecy has traced the rise and progress of the world's great empires. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. With each of these, as with the nations of less power, history has repeated itself. Each has its period of test. Each has failed. Its glory faded. And its power departed. Sober. Especially as we think about the elements of our own nation. Post-modern societies all reflect the same spiritual disease of arrogance. They believe their own lies. And this morning, I want us all to recognize that wealth and privilege are very poor educators. Is it any wonder that we find ourselves similar to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who split the kingdom in, not in half, but in two, or Belshazzar? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 3, verse 4, it says, I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. This is not what you want for a nation. But when young people start calling the shots with a willful ignorance to the wisdom of the generations before them, when arrogance settles upon them because they make big incomes bigger than their parents, they have great mobility, they're at the top of the societal uh, structure of hip, vogue, cool, in, chic, whatever you want to call it. They don't really need the affirmation and certainly not the accountability of those who've come before them. We are on the cusp of a similar kind of judgment. So how do we intoxicate? How do we not intoxicate? How do we vaccinate ourselves for the future? Well, Ellen White makes a very interesting statement. She writes on page 529, the prophet first reminded Belshazzar of matters with which he was familiar, but which he had not taught, but which had not taught him the lesson of humility that might have saved him. What's it mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that in the heart and soul of those who will walk the narrow way in the very end chapters of this earth's history, not turning to the left or the right, nobody able to stand against them even though they are ill-spoken of and circumstances are arranged contrary to their well-being. What it means is, is that there is an element of the living Christ inside of those who are not moving according to fear or pride. God is actually able to say to his end time people, you need to repent. You might be wrong. You might be in a situation where you had a false confidence. And the cultural diseases, even the diseases of the church, which lend themselves to an overabundance of assurance and an underprovision of accountability, especially as we near the final hours of judgment. God actually calls his people to a moment 
to an encounter where they have, as Peter had, a deepening repentance. Now, I'm not suggesting that our lives shall look any different than the lives of the four Hebrew worthies, but I am suggesting to you this morning that the last verse of our Scripture reading is the last verse of real relevance to those who walk in the path of life. Chapter 4, verse 37, the last sentence of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is the call of God to each of us today. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he's able to humble those who walk in pride. This morning, if you're spending more time listening to the radio or on your device or in front of a computer screen, if you're living in an echo chamber which makes no apparent ability for accountability to become a part of the journey, you could be on the same path that Belshazzar was on, simply surrounded by all of those like Rehoboam surrounded himself with all the young counselors. He put off all the old counselors. God is actually calling us to places like church, to places like the prayer meeting. He's actually calling us to encounters with people who have a love for us and a love for God that will actually sometimes create the uncomfortable moments. It wasn't a pleasure journey for Daniel to stand before all the somebodies of the final day of Babylonian dynasty history and proclaim that not only was the king, but the whole society was weighed in the balance and found wanting. And while Daniel is standing in the party chamber, Cyrus's generals are in the city and the doors are open. Cyrus is God's appointed person, according to Isaiah 45, verse 1, and the prophecy that the gates of the city of Babylon will be left open is being fulfilled as Daniel is articulating the judgment upon all the somebodies and the leaders of the generation of Belshazzar. What a sad moment. That night, the blood of Belshazzar is, is spread over the, the marble floors of his party hall. And Daniel goes on to a new chapter of significance with a whole new political framework in place. Friends, the God who sought to reach Belshazzar is the God who's seeking to reach this generation. Should you find yourself marginalized, silenced, I hear stories sometimes of, of parents who actually cut the grandparents out of the grandchildren's life. It's not enough that they need to be in charge of everything. It's not enough that they don't want to hear. They sever the golden cord, the joy of older people's lives, watching and participating again. What kind of arrogance runs natural in the heart of the unconverted man should be soberingly frightful to us looking at this story. Because if you grew up in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar and you knew for seven years he was a wild beast, and you knew of his testimony, it had only been a decade or two since it all happened, what goes wrong in the heart of a well-to-do? I could say well-educated, but not hardly so, young monarch. 
the vaccination to save us from fear and the intoxicating sensuality of this age and the pride that goes with it. The vaccination is a call of the Old Testament prophet Micah to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Where are you at today, friends? Can anybody talk to you? Do you have subject matter in your life that's out of bounds? Nobody's ever supposed to bring it up? Have you corned it off? Have you walled off certain parts of your life and nobody's supposed to touch them? Are you like that patient who's got an infection and the skin is red and raised and nobody's supposed to touch it because it hurts? Or are we willing to engage God in the communion of faith, reminded by those who love us, that God's calling all of us as we approach the last hour of judgment into a deepening humility? Maybe there's things for the Seventh-day Adventist church to change. Maybe we've not had the kind of commitment to a lost world. Maybe our love for the world, friendship with the world, it's the wrong person to have as a friend. The Bible says the wrong friends corrupt good character. Maybe we're in a position where today God is saying to a postmodern age, this last, as it were, historical story, this is the last historical story of the dynasty of Babylon. What a sad ending. Fortunately, there's one more historical story. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But the last story of this once great nation is the story of willful ignorance, resulting arrogance, and a love of pleasure and sensuality that takes a once golden, gleaming dynasty into the dust in one night. May God help each of us as we move forward on the journey, understand there will be marginalization. We may lose things that once would have been esteemed and honored upon us. But the God who walked with Daniel as he lost significance in the courts of Babylon is the God who walked him right into significance at the very end. If you've ever noticed about the characters of the Bible, sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down. But the one thing that, that God is looking for is a trust in Him to whether or not their voices are in the ascendancy or their voices have been marginalized, that their voice is heard in the morning like Psalm 5 declares, Lord, in the morning thou shalt hear my voice. It's a difficult thing to come up against something in your life and say, you know what? That needs to change. So where are we today, friends? If you want to be vaccinated for the apocalypse, if you want to walk into the future unafraid, just do it one way. Just walk humbly with God. Be in the place where God will talk because the human heart naturally calluses itself to rebuke and reproof. And go on a journey where God can be God and we can be saved from our own willful ignorance and arrogance. And may God help each one of us to not replicate one of the saddest chapters of the Bible. Why? Would you want the last moments? I have to believe in my heart of hearts. The kingdom could have fell without the encounter with Daniel. So why the handwriting on the wall? Because in my heart of hearts, I have to believe that the God who rescued his grandpa wanted him to have a few moments to think about life before it was over. 
Daniel walked into that hall with a call to repentance before the sword of execution fell. I don't know what Belshazzar's decisions were. I don't know what everybody else in that palace hall was deciding in those moments. But there could have simply been judgment with no call to repentance. Instead, God announces that his prophecies are true and that it won't be long now. And just a little ahead of the executioner's sword is a proclamation of a saving God. Whether it did any good or not, we don't know. So when you have your conversations, you may not know whether they did any good or not. But don't be afraid to have them. And don't be afraid to be the one God called you to be. For indeed, hanging in the balance is nothing less than eternal destinies. May God help us to be faithful stewards of the relationships we have so that we're listened to, or at least we have the best chance of being listened to when we speak on behalf of eternal interest, life and death. May God bless us with the humility that allows us to hear Let the righteous smite me, David said, and it'll be a balm for me. Let them strike me, and it'll be gladness to my soul. May the way of rebuke and reproof not be foreign to us. And may we do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. May God help us. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.
Yes, Lord, take us on a journey out of ourselves. The isolationism that this modern world affords, little effort put into building relationships, little need to. We don't need much of anything from anybody else right now. The fabric of humanity can be loosely woven because I have access to information like I've never had before, an opportunity, usually, Lord, with some measure of resources like no generation before. But I'm praying, Lord, that we would humble ourselves in your sight, that we come back together, first to you, where necessary, Lord, also to each other, for indeed, you will tightly weave the fabric of the end generation not only sharing their substance, but laying down their lives for each other. I'm praying, forgive us, Lord, when we have naysayed the wisdom of the previous generations. I'm asking, Lord, that we would do justly and love mercy and walk humbly and that we would honor our fathers and our mothers. And I'm praying, Lord, that as a people, we would not allow the societal diseases of willful ignorance and arrogance to eclipse our ability to see. Oh, how I pray, Lord. May we be like Jesus, who in the very form of God humbled himself and became a man. He even subjected himself to mistreatment at times. So now, Lord, we put our lives in your hands. Please inoculate us from the diseases of this age and take us all the way home. Thank you for attempting to reach Belshazzar and all those people before their lives were snuffed out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.